If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Psalm 8? Psalm chapter 8. The Bible begins with creation. In the very first chapter of Genesis, the book of beginnings, as it is called, we find God bringing order into chaos, creating the, the heavens and the earth and the seas and then filling them with light and with life. It, it's, it is this same world that God, has, that God created that we live in right now. Amazing to think about that. The physical world that we each exist in right now, every atom of it, every atom of you was formed by the word of God himself. Every star and every planet, every mountain, stream, and ocean, every insect and fish and mammal that you can imagine, even the ones that have yet to be discovered by human beings, everything was designed and created by God. And yet, for all of its grandeur, creation is something that we have also grown so accustomed to sometimes that it's easy to ignore or neglect or even destroy. We live in this world and it it so surrounds us that we often fail to grapple with what it is announcing to us and what our role is in caring for it. There are certainly moments that we pause to marvel at the world that God has made and the world that God has placed us in. We're struck by the the beauty of a mountain range or the the wonder of a a spider's web or the sight of a, a hawk in flight or the movements of the stars and the planets. However, we are often like the, the two young fish in this story who were swimming along and they met an older fish. And the older fish, as he was gliding by, he said, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swam on for a little while and then eventually one of them looked over at the other one and said, what's water? Do you get it? It's just not, maybe it's not that funny. Uh, familiarity though, it, it breeds contempt. And it can also just lead to a lack of attention. We just don't realize what's going on around us. In church, we sing and we, we, we pray to God as the creator of all things, but our, our deeper theological thoughts on the physical world are usually focused just on explaining or arguing about how things were made. And while the, the question, we, we ask these how questions of creation, and that's an important question, we often fail to grapple with the why questions about creation. We ignore the challenges of ecology the, and the questions not just of how things came to be, but of how we should care for our world as it here is, is here in the present and how that care for the earth glorifies our God in heaven who, who made the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. Sadly, the church is often some of the first people to quickly dismiss environmental concerns. And and we use the wonderful truth of the coming new creation as an excuse for doing whatever we want with the natural resources and landscapes of our present world. I don't know about you, but I was often told uh, that it's all going to burn in the end. So there's really no reason to care for what we have here and now. But while we as God's people are often silent about creation care, the scriptures are not. In fact, the very first chapter of Genesis that we mentioned and that we read earlier lays out the covenant relationship that we have with God and our role as people created in God's image and called to image or reflect him 
in the world. When you think about the image of God, it means that we image him. We show forth who he is in this world. And part of that is being caretakers of this world. To, to ignore our role as caretakers of the world is in fact then to miss out on a part of the reason that God has created us and placed us in this physical world. But when we care for creation, we glorify God and love our neighbor. That's our big idea. When we care for creation, we glorify God and love our neighbor. When we care for creation, we glorify God and love our neighbor. As those forgiven and made new through faith in Jesus, our great desire is to love God, to, to glorify him, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we can, in fact, do both of those things by caring for the physical world that he has made. As new creations in Christ Jesus, we can reclaim the call given to us in Genesis 1, the call to have dominion over this world and to cultivate it like a flourishing garden. And when we do that, when we care for creation, we glorify God. And we also love our neighbor. This is the fourth sermon in a series about stewardship. And Trevor helpfully defined and explained stewardship last week. He said that stewardship applies when first we are called to take care of something. And second, when that, the thing that we are called to care for is not ours. In thinking about care of creation, the image of renting an apartment or a home has come to my mind often. When we first moved to Louisville for a number of years, we rented a house. We mowed the grass, we vacuumed the floors, we changed the furnace filter, but that house was never ours. We just cared for it, and we enjoyed the benefits of it, and we tried to be good renters. We tried to, to care for the place as if we owned it, to, to steward the house out of respect for those who owned it and out of a sense of responsibility for the fact that they had entrusted us with their property. Now, that illustration about renter, if you press on it too hard related to creation care, it's going to break down very quickly, okay? So don't press on it too hard. But I think it can serve to help as a, to, to serve as a reminder that no matter how comfortable we are in this world or, or how long we have resided here, the world is not ours. It is the Lord's. Psalm 24, one through two tells us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And then the psalmist tells us why that's so. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth is the Lord's because he made it. God's place as the Lord over his world is assumed in all of the praises that are offered to him as creator all throughout the scriptures. And we see this praise in our text for today, Psalm 8. Look, at me, look with me at these nine verses, and we'll use these to help shape our thoughts on the stewardship and care of creation. Psalm 8, one of my favorite psalms. Uh, it feels like a psalm, one of the first ones that I remember as a child reading and saying, I like this psalm, I, I understand what it's saying. So kids, listen to this one. It's, it's an encouraging one. Psalm 8, it's a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We're going to consider some of what we find in the psalm uh, this week, and then my hope is to consider some more of it uh, next Sunday for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So if I skip a verse or two that you would like to think more about, know that we're going to, Lord willing, come back to it um, next Sunday. But for today, I want us to think primarily about this psalm in relation to our main idea. When we care for creation, we glorify God and love our neighbor. And my hope today is that as we think about care for creation in Psalm 8 and elsewhere uh, in the scriptures, um, my hope is not to work out all of the practical details of what creation care is going to look like for each of us. I'm not going to give you a list of, you know, you need to recycle all plastics with this number on them or anything like that. That's not the goal of this. I I wish I, I could get into more details, but time and also the place of personal convictions, I think, prevents me from doing that too detailed. But rather, I want us to see in the scriptures that a concern for our physical world and a desire to care for the environment should be a part of our hearts as children of God. That should be something that we're at least concerned about. And maybe beyond that, we could also begin to to see, begin to unpack the idea that a biblical worldview leads, in fact, to the most helpful and balanced approach to caring for creation. Now, often, I think we reject environmental concerns because they are espoused by people that we would seem to think are are worshiping some sort of false god, whether they are worshiping the god of nature itself or whether they're worshiping their own self-interest or or something else. And so we kind of reject environmental concerns right out out of hand. But as uh, we as followers of of Christ and as students of the the scriptures are, are best equipped to be realistic about the legitimate concerns that face this planet while also allowing our theology to rightly shape how and to what extent we respond to these things. And then once we're, we're convinced by the threats that are facing our physical world and, and the fact that they should concern us and, and when we can address them in a way that glorifies God and, and doesn't glorify nature, then we can start down this path to finding practical steps towards in fact imaging God as we care for the world. Drawing from Psalm 8 then here, I give you, I'll give you two points, simple, and hopefully fairly short. Number one, creation reveals the glory of God and the smallness of humanity. And number two, as God's image bearers, we are called to reveal his hidden nature through our care for his creation. We'll come back to that second one. So first this, creation reveals the glory of God and the smallness of humanity reveals the glory of God and the smallness of humanity. This psalm is bookended by this praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It begins and ends with praise. And then we see that as the psalmist considers the heavens, he rightly understands how small he is. Now, for the most part, I think we know this idea that creation reveals the glory of God and the smallness of humanity. We know that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, that the sky above is proclaiming 
his handiwork. We know that the created world is a revelation of God to all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And as we consider the heavens, in particular the the moon and the stars, we realize just how small we are. Did anyone else get a call from Ken to go out and look at Saturn? And was it Jupiter, is that right, coming together? Ken called me. I'm not making fun of you, Ken. Ken was like a little kid. He was so excited about these stars, and I loved it because it is amazing to go out if you saw the, how close, not these stars, these planets coming together. It's amazing. And when we think about that, it is amazing. But then David says here that the, that, that the cosmos, that, that those planets so huge and so far away, they're not even the work of God's arm. What are they the work of? His finger. <laughs> That's how he made them. The moon and the stars are the work of his fingers. And so maybe you watch planet Earth or you, you walk around planet Earth. And, and then when we do that, we're filled with a wonder about everything that surrounds us. And yet all of that wonder also wells up not into a worship of these things in, the, in and of themselves, but in a worship of the one who made them all. And like David, when our hearts are filled with a worship to the Lord of creation, we're also moved to deep humility. It's hard though sometimes in our insulated and primarily indoor lives, we often fail to reckon with the power of God in our own weakness. Just think about how powerful we are, all the things that we can do just by touching a little screen. We've even got voice command devices now. We can just talk and we feel like little gods but I don't know about you, I had to take my garbage out to the curb and it was cold <laughs> and I felt very small and I felt very weak and I literally ran back into my house because I, I didn't put my coat on when I went out and I realized how small we are and that, how powerful God is. Sometimes maybe you've gone to the ocean and you just walk a few feet out into the Atlantic Ocean which is about 3,000 miles wide at some parts. And you're just a few feet in, and all of a sudden you get knocked down by a wave or you can hardly stand against the current that's trying to pull you out into the water and you realize how small you are, how small we are. And so God's power and his greatness are seen in creation and it humbles us. We realize how great he is and how small we are. But I often just, we look at creation and we think about God's power and his greatness and, and the intimidation factor of it all, but we also see God's power in creation by his, through his provision for all things. Did you see that when we read Psalm 104? Just the glory of God in providing for the earth. I don't know about you, I struggle just to feed myself sometimes, and then I have to feed all my kids, and it's a little crazy around our house at mealtimes, but God is feeding the whole world. His storehouses are limitless and he satisfies the whole earth with good things. We can go on and on and think about the glory of God revealed in creation and how it makes us feel small. My kids watched It's a Wonderful Life yesterday and so it's on my mind a little bit, but George Bailey said it well to Mr. Potter. This is what he said. This is to all of us if we're honest. He said at one point, you sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. (laughs) 
In some sense, that's the reality of creation. In the great vastness of the world, we're nothing but scurvy little spiders. <laughs> True, in one sense. But the psalmist takes, David takes another turn, doesn't he? Because after David talks about humanity's insignificance, what does he say in his next breath in, in verse five? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And so we see that our relationship to God's world is not just where we learn that how great God is and that we are humbled by his greatness, but as we think about our position in the world, we also realize that as God's image bearers, we reveal his hidden nature as we care for creation. That's our second point. As God's image bearers, we reveal his hidden nature as we care for his creation. We're not just scurvy little spiders. We are the crown of creation. We are people who bear his image. And as his image barriers, we are able to reveal his hidden nature in this world in many different ways. And one of those is as we care for creation. Creation in and of itself reveals the character of God. It tells his wonder. And we too, in many different ways, including our care for creation, reveal his character. Much can be said about what it means in Genesis 1 when we are called to exercise dominion over creation. And that's what David is referencing there in, in verses 5 through 8. But the images of Genesis 1 and 2 seem to say that gardening is a helpful way to think about exercising dominion over the world. What is gardening? It's caring for and cultivating the ground so that it bears fruit. It's, it's, dominion is not about destroying or dominating creation. It's not about ransacking it or neglecting it, but it's about caring for it in a way that leads to fruitfulness. And the images of Psalm 104, again, show us that God does the same thing, that he cares for this world and cultivates it. And so we are invited to partner with him in this care for his world. And so we are image bearers, showing what God is like as we care for creation. And just as the heavens declare the glory of God, so too we declare who God is as we reflect his character in the world that he has made by stewarding this earth well, by caring for it. Of course, this dominion over creation in Genesis 1 was given to us before the fall, before sin. And the thorns and the thistles that have come make the task of caring for the world more difficult. And I'm not just talking about the thorns and the thistles that come up from the ground. We're talking about sin in general makes it hard to care for God's good world. They make it impossible to do it completely or to do it perfectly, but it is still possible to reflect God by caring for the earth. And it may be that whenever any human being cares for this world, we're actually showing the remaining vestiges of God's image in us all. But I also think it could be that, that those who are redeemed by Jesus have a unique calling and a unique ability to reflect God and even to announce the truth of the gospel as we care for creation. And to that end, as we think about we who are image bearers of God, we also need to remember that Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. He is the image of God, the exact representation of his nature. And therefore, Jesus perfectly shows us how to have dominion over 
creation. If Jesus is the second Adam, then Jesus does what Adam was called to do better than Adam ever did it. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the best reflection and the fullest reflection of what is found here in Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. Look at Hebrews 2, if you would. Hebrews 2, I will read some of this and then invite you to think more about it as I join with you in thinking more about what this means. But in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews has been talking about Jesus as exalted above angels, which ties into Psalm 8 in some way. And then he says this in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It, it has been testified somewhere. Where has it been testified? It's been testified in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then we read now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I don't fully know. Uh, I didn't have time to really delve into Hebrews 2. But there's something deep here about how Jesus, in coming, shows the image of God in, a, in the deepest way. And not only by caring for creation, but by overcoming the results of the fall and of sin. Jesus comes and he flawlessly reflects God's image in this world. He does what Adam failed to do. And he does even more because he in fact defeats the death that Adam's sin brought into this world. He crushes the head of Satan and destroys the curse. He not only cares for creation, but by coming and living and dying, he redeems us. And then he says that he is redeeming all things and that one day, according to Romans 8, that he will redeem creation itself and he will make it new. It would be nice in some ways to say, well, if he's gonna make everything new, as I said, to just dismiss all environmental concerns, but I think that's just too simplistic. And I think that Jesus is showing us that there is a way that he invites us to care for this world even as we look for a new one. As those redeemed by Jesus were called to, to walk in his ways, which includes caring for this world as we look to the next one. And as we glorify God through caring for this world, without worshiping it or hoping in it, we reflect God's image and we reflect his gospel in this place. Is our hope in this world? No. But does this world reflect the glory of God? Yes. Now, if you're a little lost, which I got a little lost this week, to be honest. I think I read too much about the big theme of creation care and then I got lost in the details of Psalm 8, and then Hebrews 2 came in so late in my study, I didn't know what to do with it, but I felt like we had to say something because it's tying Jesus into this image of God. So if you're a little lost, because I'm a little lost, then Jesus makes this all very simple. How does Jesus summarize the law? He gives us two great commandments. 
says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What are the motivations for caring for God's world? They are love for God and love for neighbor. They are gospel motivations. Love for God and his glory in the world. As we look around the world and we see the beauty of it and then we see things that destroy it, we don't want that. There are parts of uh, things that we do to this world where we destroy it. If you've ever even thought in some minor way about something like mountaintop removal mining, you realize that this is not what God called us to do in caring for creation. Let's blow the top off of a mountain so that we can get its resources out and, and give, have no regard for how it affects other people. If you know about pollution that fills our oceans, then we know that this is not the way that God intended for us to cultivate and bring beauty into the earth. And some of that is just a, a result of the fall and some of it is a revol- result of our selfishness. But if we long for God to be glorified in this world, there is something about caring for his world that shows our love for him and our love for his glory. But ultimately, I think one of the greatest motivations for caring for the world is love for neighbor. We love our neighbor and we long for their flourishing in this world, then we will care for the world that God has given us. If you look at environmental concerns, do you know who is most affected typically by them? It's the poor. It's people who are uh, weak in this world. It's people often in countries other than ours. And we, if we uh, take this world and we just use it for our own desires and our own good and we don't think about our neighbor and we don't think about how it can affect others, then we are not loving our neighbor well. Here's the problem. There's so many... Um, trickle-down effects. You watch one documentary on Netflix and it'll show you all the ways that your decisions affect mass numbers of people. And so we have to do our best. We are, uh, we are weak and we live in a broken world and we're not gonna save this world. But there is a way to love our neighbor by caring for the world that we live in. And so this psalm, I think, tells us that we should be humbled by creation and we should also be humbled in such a way that we would treat creation and our fellow image bearers with respect and with love. And so I invite you to, to find a way to image God in this world through caring for creation, through being a good steward of this place that we've been given, to be a good renter, if you will, of this place. But to do it not in our, that this is our ultimate hope, but knowing that because of what Christ has done, because he has redeemed us, he will one day redeem this world and all the brokenness in it, and he will be glorified for all ages. Would you join me in prayer? Father, these thoughts feel less complete than they normally do. So I pray you would take your truth and imprint it on our hearts. I pray you take the truth of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, Psalm 104, Hebrews 2, and help us to wrestle with these things. But ultimately, Lord, help us to look to Jesus and know that he has come to 
make all things new. Thank you that Jesus has come to live and to die and to rise again. That his perfect life makes up for all of our failings. That his perfect death pays the price for the sins that we've committed. And that we have a hope that he is coming again. Well, we hold on to that. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.